0: Good evening and welcome to our Bible study series. We're continuing in our look at the book of Acts. And before we begin, I want to make an important announcement. Uh, Next Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving, we will not be having Bible study. Um, Usually we cancel it anyway, the day before Thanksgiving. But also, please keep me in your prayers as Shireen and Pastor Tom and I will be in Dominican Republic uh, for, I think, a very significant mission. So we appreciate your prayers and for God to give us wisdom, discernment, direction while we're there. All right. Um, as always, I want to mention the notes and audio recordings for all of these studies are available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And you can download both the notes and the recordings there for your own use. You may also follow us online at MixLR.com. And the broadcast name is New Life Ministries. You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast if you have a smartphone or other device that can handle those things. Okay, we're in part four of this 12 part series in the book of Acts and if you're following in the notes we've come to page 49 and we're looking at Acts chapters 3, 4, and 5 in this part 4 of the study and very early on we're already noticing that as the church begins to grow As the message of the gospel is proclaimed, more and more people are responding. By this time, we already have thousands of converts in this early infant church. And as always, whenever God moves, there's an opposition from the forces of darkness. And we have begun to see here in Acts 4 the first of many waves of persecution that would come against the early church Uh, for a miracle that took place at the temple gate with the lame beggar that was healed by Peter and John. Uh, Peter and John ended up in jail for a night and they're now facing the Sanhedrin. All the big religious leaders, and so forth, Um, and as we point out here on page 49, if you do have your notes in front of you, uh, it's very interesting to look at the source of persecution. In other words, what is the real motivation behind opposition to Christ, opposition to the gospel? One very important source of persecution also comes from the religious ranks. It's not so much from the heathen and the drunkards and the witches and the occultists. The persecution that we see here is coming from the religious establishment. And that is very often the case. And it's worthy of our taking a little bit of a closer look to really understand what is the motivation for this opposition. Why were Peter and John put in jail for doing a good deed? They healed a man that had been crippled for 40 years. Everybody should have been clapping and cheering, and most of the folks were, except for the religious establishment. And herein lies the great revelation. The main motivation here was fear. They were threatened. They were afraid that they were beginning to lose their power, their control, and their influence over the people. And that is often the case even to this day. When there's a move of God, there's a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, It challenges the religious status quo, and those who have the most to lose are those that are in the establishment. They have uh, an established order of control, they often receive monetary benefits from the people, and they feel threatened whenever there's any kind of a fresh move of God that obviously is challenging their position, their control, and what is what has often become a dead religious establishment. so the religious elite here they have realized they have a problem they cannot deny that a notable amazing miracle has taken place because the miracle is standing right there in front of them. The crippled man, remember after he was healed, he ran into the temple and he has continued up until this point to stay right by the side of Peter and John. Even though they were thrown into prison, He didn't run away, he stayed there with them, and now even after their release from prison, he's continuing to stand right by their side. So the religious leaders couldn't deny the fact that everyone in Jerusalem knew this man. They recognized that a notable miracle had taken place. And these religious leaders are sensing that more and more people in Jerusalem are becoming believers and becoming a part of this movement called The Way. And so they've got a dilemma. They can't deny the miracle, but they need to be very careful that they don't aggravate all of these crowds of people that have now also become followers of Peter and John and, of course, followers of Christ. So they didn't dare punish the apostles for performing this act of kindness, but somehow they have to find a way to stop them. And notice what they say in verses 17 and 18 of Acts 4 but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. Notice, that's what's really concerning them. This thing is spreading, and they have to find a way to stop it from spreading among the people. And as we mentioned, if it keeps spreading among the people, they're going to lose their influence. They're going to lose their following. So, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called the apostles in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Okay, now we've already noticed in verse 13 of this chapter that even the religious leaders were taking note of The boldness, the courage of Peter and John. That was something that caught their attention, their boldness. They were not politically correct. They spoke very bluntly, very frankly, and that's really what the word meant we saw. They were speaking very frankly and very bluntly. The word for boldness here is all outspokenness or bluntness, boldness. So, this strategy is doomed to fail. They're going to threaten them to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, but they've just taken note of the fact that these men are bold. They have courage that came from them being with Jesus. Nevertheless, all they can do is try to threaten them not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. This is interesting in a broader sense, and as I mentioned a little bit ago, for us to understand what often happens in church circles in denominations and religious establishments. The establishment has a lot to lose. Their following, their control, the perhaps the monetary uh, gain that they stand to lose if they lose their following. And so whenever there's a fresh move of the Holy Spirit, the flesh always rises up against the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul talks about that continual war between the flesh and the Spirit. But there's another interesting passage in the chapter previous to that in Galatians 4. And I want to read two verses there. Galatians 4, verses 28 and 29. And in context, Paul is teaching on the contrast between the old covenant of law and the new covenant of grace, the new covenant of the Holy Spirit. But he puts it in a very nice way here in Galatians 4, 28 and 29. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the Son born in the ordinary way persecuted the Son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. And you have to read the whole passage to get the context, but he's using Ishmael and Isaac as representatives or symbols of the Old Covenant Versus the New. Ishmael was the son born in the ordinary way. And he says here very clearly, that son persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. Now you won't find that in the Genesis account, but the Holy Spirit gave Paul insight here into exactly how Isaac was born. Remember, Abraham and Sarah were way past the age of childbearing. They could not have a son in an ordinary way. So, they needed the power of the Spirit to bring forth this son. And so, the birth of Isaac is actually a miracle of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice again what 29 says here. The son born in the ordinary way, Ishmael, persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit, Isaac. Okay, interesting insight into what really happened in the Old Testament, but he's not done yet. And these are the words that follow, and I've put them in all caps for emphasis in the notes. It is the same now. It is the same now. That which is born in the ordinary way, it comes about just through human means, through natural means, no need for the power of the Spirit. A lot of religions are like that. A lot of denominations are run that way, just by human wisdom, ordinary uh, human methods those organizations will always persecute that which is born of the power of the Spirit. So, whenever there's a move of the Holy Spirit, it's supernatural. It's not ordinary. And we're not meant to be ordinary people, The churches that we are in are not meant to be ordinary. They're supposed to be extraordinary, supernatural, and what is happening in our churches should be explained only by including this dimension, the power of the Spirit. And let me just add this little sidebar. If everything that we do in our churches, in our ministries, can be accomplished without depending on the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. We're in serious trouble. And if what is happening in our ministries can only be explained by the supernatural power of God, then we are more like the church that we're reading about in the Book of Acts. So the religious establishment, of course, they weren't depending on the power of the Spirit. They were just uh, maintaining a status quo of human control over people's lives. Naturally, they felt threatened. They felt challenged by this new movement called the Way that was spreading like wildfire ever since the day of of Pentecost. So, the only remedy they can come up with is to try to muzzle these apostles, try to scare them, threaten them into silence. So, they threaten them not to speak, not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. But as I mentioned, they seemed to very quickly forget what they took note of in verse 13. The courage, the boldness of Peter and John. And so their threats accomplished absolutely nothing. So after threatening them in verse 17, let's look at the next two verses. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, nice try, but you're not going to shut us up. We can't keep quiet about this matter. Furthermore, there's a very important lesson unfolding here, and it's about submission to authority. Yes, the Bible teaches to submit to authority, but always, 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 we must submit to the highest authority. Now, Romans 13 teaches us that governmental civil authorities have been established by God, and so we should obey them. We should obey presidents, governors, kings, police officers, other enforcers of the law. And by the way, we're seeing a total breakdown of that in our society now, we're seeing a total disregard for law at many different levels in society, even in the government itself. We have lawbreakers, we have people who think they're above the law, and a lot of what's being shown in the media in recent days as protests are not protests at all. They're riots. These are not the same thing. Protesting is one thing. Smashing windows, setting businesses on fire, blocking traffic and impeding the other people in society, that's not protesting. That is rioting. That is breaking the law, and it's an example of what we're going to see more and more of in these last days, the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist is called the spirit of lawlessness. So, Those folks need to understand how law and order is supposed to work. Laws are meant to be obeyed, but here's what we need to understand in this passage. We always must obey the highest authority. So even though these high priests and religious leaders had certain authority in their religious circle, Peter and John understood something very important here. Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. So, whenever there's a conflict between a direct commandment from God or something that is clearly stated in the Word of God If there's a conflict between that and human authority, we must always appeal to the higher authority. Obey God rather than men. Now, if the law of the land has stated clearly the speed limit is 55 miles per hour, Uh, I don't think you're going to be able to appeal to the judge when you get your speeding ticket and tell them, well, God told me I could go 60 miles per hour. That's not going to fly. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we are talking about is these apostles heard very clearly in the Great Commission that Jesus commanded them to go into all the world with the gospel. They were commanded to preach this gospel to every creature and to baptize and make disciples, etc. So when a human authority comes along and says, okay, stop speaking in this name. You can't talk about Jesus anymore. You can't speak anything openly in the public squares or in the synagogues concerning this name, Jesus be quiet, you can't talk anymore about Jesus. Well, they got it right. We can't obey you, we must obey God. So, we must always obey the highest authority if God is telling us to do something different in his word, in his commandments, than what the culture or what the laws are saying, we must obey God. Now, things are going to start getting real crazy in our culture, where, for instance, gay marriage has been legalized in all 50 states. Three more states were added to the growing list of states that now include Maryland and D.C., of Legalizing marijuana. I don't care if they legalize heroin. That doesn't legitimize these things for a Christian, okay? It's legal to drink alcohol. That doesn't make it any better for a believer. We must obey the highest laws which are given to us by God. So even though the majority of people in the society now are immoral. They're having multiple sexual partners. More and more people aren't even bothering to get married. They're just living in fornication. That doesn't mean we can do it because everybody else is doing it. We must obey God rather than men. So, in this case, even though they were being threatened and commanded not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, they basically said, sorry, we can't obey that. We have a higher command. We must do what God has commissioned us to do. So, it says, after further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So, the religious elite is still in a real pickle. They, they've they got to stop these men from continuing to spread this gospel all throughout Jerusalem, but they have so many followers already that they dare not punish them because it'll certainly start a riot. So they threaten them some more and then they let them go. Now we come to one of my favorite parts in the book of Acts. Just imagine you've just been released from prison for preaching the gospel. You've been warned and threatened. Don't talk anymore anymore about this man, Jesus Christ, or you'll be in worse trouble. So what do they do? Let's turn back to the story, and we're going to read Acts 4, from verse 23 to 31. It says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. That's important, we'll talk about that. They went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David, quoting from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal, and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So, on their release, Peter and John have now been let go by the chief priests and all the other religious leaders. Where do they go? It says they went back to their own people. After imprisonment, cross-examination, interrogation, threats, and warnings, the apostles have just been set free They go where they're going to receive the greatest strength and the greatest comfort. They don't go back to mom and dad and their blood relatives. They go to their own people. Who are their own people? They go to the church. They go to the believers. They go to the family of God. You see, this is important to understand. Now that they are born again... Now that they are a part of this redeemed community, that is their people. That's where they feel most connected, and that's where they go in this very trying moment. They go back to their own people. And by the way, we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts. It was the custom of the apostles to always report back to the church whenever they were returning from a missionary trip or ministry, or even, as in this case, from persecution. They would report these things back to the church. Let's look at three quick examples later on in the book of Acts of how they did this. <clears throat> in Acts fourteen twenty-seven, we read, On arriving there this is Paul and Barnabas coming back to Antioch, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So this was their custom, to keep the church informed even when they went out on these trips and missions, they would come back to the church and report, give testimony about their trip and all that God had done. Acts 15, verse 4, When they, again, this is Paul and Barnabas, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Again, in Acts 21, verse 19, Paul greeted them, in context, Paul has now come to Jerusalem, so these are the Christian brothers at Jerusalem. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So, we've had a miracle in the temple, we've had a small persecution, spending one night in prison then being interrogated, warned, threatened not to speak anymore in Jesus' name, they go right back to the church in Jerusalem and report to them about this persecution. Verse 23 again, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So, they would have explained, we had a miracle in the temple, we went to jail, the chief priests and all the other religious leaders warned us not to talk anymore in Jesus' name, so we better be quiet and we better stay under the radar for a while. No, that's not what they said. The very first thing they did, and here's some real good advice for you and me whenever trouble comes our way. The first thing they did was fall to their knees and pray. There's no indication here of any discussion. All they did was tell them what happened and how the chief priests had threatened them, the very next verse it says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Oh, that we would stop wasting so much time talking, discussing, worrying, trying to come up with plans and strategies, and instead just run into the throne room and start raising our voices to God in prayer. And I like this prayer. It's a nice prayer for you to study on your own. They raise their voices together in prayer, and the first two words are important. Sovereign Lord. That's whom they're praying to. They're not praying to a weak God, a God who has a little bit of control over matters, They're praying to the God they were already beginning to know, the Sovereign Lord. And these are actually two separate words in Greek. The first Greek word, despotes, from which we get the word despot, is an absolute ruler, lord, or master. And then the second word is the word theos, which means deity or supreme divinity. So, in praying those two titles, what they're really praying is, Lord God Almighty, absolute ruler, supreme divinity, <clears throat> absolute ruler over everything, we're bringing to you our requests sovereign Lord. We have a need. We have a problem. And so we're coming to you. You know, one of the attributes of God that will help you greatly in your prayer life and in your Christian life in general is understanding that God is sovereign. The word sovereign actually comes from two words. And this will help you to remember how to spell it also. It's S-O-V-E and then reign, R-E-I-G-N. Sovereign. It literally means reigning or ruling over. So the sovereign Lord rules and reigns over everything. God is in control of everything, the most high rules. He's in charge of every other despot, every other king, every other lord, president, government, dictator. He's in control of the entire universe. He's the author of the universe, and therefore he has authority over all things over the entire universe so when you're praying to that god is there anything too hard for the lord absolutely not god can do anything he can do anything he can intervene in any situation that he wants to and so when you pray it might be helpful to start off your prayers sovereign lord Lord God Almighty, the God who is in control of all things. And this was something that was already being firmly established in the early church. Because back in Acts 2, verse 36, we learned that Jesus is Lord of everything. The church understood Jesus has all authority. He is Lord over everything. And let's just look at a few verses, there are many, many more, but a few verses from the Old Testament that speak about the sovereignty of God. One of my favorites is in Daniel 4, which has to do with the evil despot, the evil dictator, Nebuchadnezzar. This is the Nebuchadnezzar who in his arrogance went into Jerusalem, burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground, raided the temple, stole all of the sacred golden articles from the temple of God, took them back with him to Babylon, and also took many captives. Many exiles went with him back to Babylon, and many others were put to death. This is that same Nebuchadnezzar, and you remember, God appeared to him and basically told him, you're going to become a crazy man for seven years. You're going to be out of your mind for seven years, and you're going to learn a lesson during those seven years. Here's what you're going to learn you're going to learn that the most high rules. You're not the most high, Nebuchadnezzar. There's one higher than you. And I have absolute authority over you and your kingdom, and I can do with you whatever I choose. So after that seven-year period of insanity, God in his mercy restored Nebuchadnezzar's sanity and restored to him his kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar was so transformed by this whole experience, he becomes a believer. He begins to praise God and to tell everybody in his kingdom his testimony of what the Lord did in his life. And we have part of his testimony recorded here in Daniel chapter 4. Let's hear what he has to say after this seven-year experience. Daniel 4, from verse 34. At the end of that time, in context, the seven years of insanity, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. I like that. I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. If you want your sanity to be restored, I'd stop looking around at the earth and start looking up. Look up toward heaven. Then I praised the most high. This is one of the most amazing conversions in the Bible. This guy really got converted. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now, if you didn't know it, you might think these words were penned by the psalmist David or one of the prophets. But these words are coming from Nebuchadnezzar. The same man who destroyed Jerusalem. Let me read this again. I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom, not the kingdom of Babylon, and by the way, the kingdom of Babylon would be short-lived. It would be conquered by the Persians, and it wouldn't last much longer. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. Now, pause for a minute. That statement is one of the best summaries of the sovereignty of God. That's really what it means. He does as he pleases. He can do anything he wants. You're not going to stop him. I'm not going to stop him. Nobody's going to stop him. God can do whatever he wants. He has absolute authority. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the powers of the earth. No one, not even mighty Nebuchadnezzar, can hold back his hand or say to him, what. Have you done? Nebuchadnezzar learned the hard way. The Most High rules. His kingdom is an absolute kingdom and a dominion over all other kings and kingdoms. Psalm 115 verse 3 says the same thing. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 135, verse 6, The Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Let me say a word also about the recent elections here in the United States. A lot of people are upset with the results. Well, you can never please everyone, but one thing is, we as believers better understand very well the Most High rules. And that doesn't mean every elected official pleases the Lord. It means he put them there for a purpose. He raised up Nebuchadnezzar for a purpose. God puts people in positions of authority because it's his will. And the Christian church in America better understand whether they like everybody that got elected in this election or not. They better understand this is God's choosing and we better accept it. The most high rules. Now, God sets up one, he puts down another. No one can predict what's going to happen in the future, but for now, God has spoken. And we pride ourselves, you know, on uh, being a republic, and the whole democratic process of casting our ballot at the election booth and all of that. That's all good and well, but the Bible teaches something different. God rules. He puts up one ruler. He puts down another. And again, he's not endorsing every one of these candidates as his holy one. No, not at all. And this might sound uh, sacrilegious or heretical, but even terrible, brutal dictators like Saddam Hussein or uh, Adolf Hitler, God put them in those positions for a reason. He raised them up and he also pulled them down. But make no mistake, the Most High rules. Otherwise, you're left with a God who has limited power. And that's not the God of the Bible, and it's certainly not my God. My God is the Most High God. He has absolute power over everyone and everything. And the Word of God teaches us even the heart of a king, a president, a dictator, or an Adolf Hitler, even the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord. And God can turn his heart just like a channel of water, just like turning on the faucet and turning off the faucet, God can do whatever he wants with these governmental rulers and leaders, kings, presidents. My peace, my confidence is Jesus is the king of kings. He's the king over all the kings, All the presidents, they must give an account to him. They are answerable to the ultimate sovereign authority of God. God is in charge. God can do anything. So, in their prayer, they're acknowledging, first of all, the sovereignty of God, the sovereign control of God, over all the affairs of men. Then, in verses 25 to 27, this is something we've been seeing over and over in these opening chapters of the book of Acts, is frequent reference to Old Testament prophecy and showing how those prophecies are now being fulfilled. That's what happens next in this prayer. They're actually quoting from Psalm 2. And let me read uh, from Psalm 2, the part that they're citing in their prayer. Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, reads as follows. Why do the nations conspire, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This was predicted by the psalmist David, that earthly kings, earthly rulers, even religious rulers, would rise up in defiance against the sovereign Lord and against his anointed one. So, they're quoting this as they're praying about this present situation with the religious persecution that's being brought against the apostles and the early church. So, here's their prayer again. Sovereign Lord, you made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. You're the creator God, and because you created everything, you're sovereign, you spoke by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And that's where the quote comes. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, in their prayer, they go a little further and they confirm how this prophecy has been confirmed, and some of the exact individuals that fulfilled the prophecy. Notice in verse 27, they mention Herod and Pontius Pilate. They're part of the kings and rulers that gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. His anointed one is the Christ. It's Jesus. So indeed, Herod, Pontius Pilate, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, right here in Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. No doubt remains there who the anointed one is. It's Jesus. Jesus is the anointed one, and Herod, Pilate, all of the religious rulers together, notice their united attack is actually against the Lord and against Christ, the anointed one. This is the the battle line between all these different ones, Herod, Pilate, the chief priests, and religious leaders, united together against the Lord and against Christ. This would be confirmed later when Saul of Tarsus, to become Paul the Apostle, had his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. What was he asked? Saul Saul, Why do you persecute me? Well, Paul thought he was persecuting the Christians, but actually he was waging war against the Christ, against Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So, this attack is not so much against Peter, John, the Christians in Jerusalem, The attack is against the Lord and against his Christ. And when you and I are being persecuted for our faith in Christ and our walk with Christ, please understand, they're not attacking you, they're attacking the Anointed One. And so when you go to the Anointed One in prayer, you better believe he's going to fight your battle. He's going to be right there with you in the fray because he takes this attack very personally. Why are you persecuting me Jesus will ask. Next part is my favorite. They, meaning Pilate, Herod, all the religious leaders that rose up against Christ, they did what your power, capital Y, God's power, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, you have to examine this a little more carefully. If you read through the gospel account of the betrayal of Jesus, his arrest, his so-called trial, and ultimately his crucifixion, it would seem on the surface that all of the religious leaders, together with Pontius Pilate and Herod, They conspired together against Jesus to do what their own wicked hearts had planned and purposed and wanted to do. They were expressing what they wanted to do. They wanted to get rid of Jesus. They wanted him crucified, and so they all conspired together, and it seemed like their plan succeeded. But now we learn this is something very important to understand about the sovereignty of God. God is often behind the scenes, and remember, he's in charge of everything. So God is behind the scenes. He's even in control when it seems like evil people like Herod and Pilate are getting their own way. The sovereign God threw them a big curveball here. They were actually carrying out God's predestined hand and purpose. Their opposition to God and His divine will actually proved to be a stroke of alliance with His will. Now, I know that's hard to understand, but although it seems like they're fighting against god they're actually carrying out his plan <laughs> they had waged war against christ unwittingly agreeing to promote christ's glory and that's why so many details of his arrest his betrayal his crucifixion and death they were all prophesied hundreds of years earlier because this was god's plan unwittingly, they were carrying out the plan of God. That's why Joseph was able to tell his brothers, you meant evil when you sold me as a slave into Egypt, you wanted to get rid of me. You meant evil, but God meant good. God had a plan that superseded and was superimposed even over your evil hearts. Your evil plan to get rid of me. And coming back to Psalm 2, David's prophecy continues to say this. These rulers that would conspire together and come against the Lord and against his anointed one. In verse 4 of Psalm 2, it says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So, God isn't the least bit worried or bothered about the Herods, the Hitlers, the Pilots, or whomever. He has absolute control, and in that same psalm he says, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. None of you can stop me from my plan. But here's something that might help you if not presently, maybe in the future when you find yourself in a difficult situation, God doesn't always calm the storm. Now, Jesus did that once when he was out on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples, but God doesn't always work that way. He doesn't always beat down every storm that rises up against him. Sometimes, the Bible says, he rides upon the storm. In other words, He's still in control, but he's using the storm to accomplish his greater purpose. Sometimes God can stop a flood, but sometimes he rides on top of the flood. These are things you find in the scriptures. For instance, Psalm 68, 4, it says, Sing to God, sing praise to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. He didn't rebuke the clouds, he rides on them. His name is the Lord, and rejoice before him. Psalm 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. Now, if you know anything about a flood, a flood is a mass of water that's totally out of control. It has overflowed the banks. It is knocking down houses, trees, sweeping away people, cars, cattle, and everything in its path. It's the epitome of something out of control. But guess what? The Lord sits enthroned on top of the flood. So, I hope you can get the picture here and we're going to close at this point tonight. Herod Pilate, chief priests, persecutors, Saul of Tarsus, fill in the blanks, anybody that tries to oppose the Lord and His Anointed One, you better be on notice, because the Sovereign Lord is in control of you. And you may actually, even in your evil thoughts or desires, be carrying out His predestined plan. That's what it says. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The Bible says the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. He frustrates the plans of the nations. He frustrates the plans of the kings, the presidents, the governments, to try to rise up against him but no one no one will ever stop or frustrate the plan of god therefore the safest place for you and me to be is surrendered totally to the sovereign god and his plan and purpose then we have confidence that all things are working together for our good because We've been called according to His purpose, and we love Him. If you're called according to His purpose, there is no purpose that can frustrate His plan for your life. God will have His way, and He might even use some evil people with evil intentions along the way to carry out that plan. Look at the life of Joseph, beautiful picture of that. You meant evil, God meant good, in the end, God triumphed, and his plan marched forward. So, even persecution, when it arises in the church, God will use it for good, he will use it even for expanding his kingdom, adding even more to the church, and strengthening the faith of those believers in the church. Let's close in prayer for now. And again, one reminder, if you joined us late, uh, we will not be having Bible study next week. That's November the 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving. So we'll be back once again the following Wednesday, November the 30th. Let's close in prayer. Sovereign Lord, absolute ruler over the universe, because you made all things, you're the author of all things, you also have authority over all things. Hallelujah. The Most High rules. God, I thank you that you rule in all of the affairs of men. You rule over kings, kingdoms, thrones, dominions. You are in charge, O God. And we, as your children, can take great comfort and strength from that, knowing that you are sovereign. You have all power, all authority. You have absolute control over people, events, situations, circumstances, everything concerning our lives. You are in control. And therefore tonight, we surrender, we place our trust in you, and Lord remind us, even when opposition arises, and it will, even when persecution comes, and it will, help us to remember this prayer that they prayed in the early church. Sovereign Lord, you are in control. And Lord, we can trust you and we ask for you to continue to give us strength and boldness to speak your word, to live the Christian life, to trust in you at every turn. God bless each and every one that has joined us tonight, those that might be listening online or in the future. Strengthen them through your word. Strengthen their faith that they can be bold followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves into your keeping hands. Watch over us. Bless us and make us a blessing. Use us to extend and expand your kingdom.